Just quickly, if you're enjoying the podcast, please, please hit that subscribe button. We love bringing you interesting content that educates, empowers and inspires you. And so subscribing really helps the podcast to grow and supports us to keep doing what we're doing. Now, on to this week's episode. Jenny Morton, I've so been looking forward to chatting with you again ever since we spoke for episode 40 of this podcast on the topic of integrated skills, teaching singing to dancers. And here we are for episode 97. So how are you? Oh my goodness, 97. You've been busy while (laughs) since I last saw you. I'm really well, thank you. Yes, really excited to be back with you guys. You have got some really great material on musicians and injuries and many of our listeners will be interested to know how they can assist their artists and actor musos that they work with so firstly before we get into the nitty-gritty what should we understand about musicians and potential injury so you know we call the musicians instrumental musicians the the athletes of the small muscles right so one of the things i say when i'm working with i, I used to teach an uh, uh, injury prevention class for musicians and uh, i would always say to them do you consider yourself an athlete you know and they look at me like what are you talking about i sit in orchestra all day you know um but the way they're using the muscles this sort of you know is in an endurance sport essentially when you're playing you know a violin for eight hours a day um, but it's using the small mu- muscles versus the big muscles, but that still means that there's there's you know high cardiovascular requirements. Um, that's one thing that that musicians don't often think about because a lot of them are not the best at you know physical fitness and going you know out to the gym and running the cardiovascular system. Um, but there's a lot of research in looking at heart rate in musicians when they're in rehearsal and then performance. And this, a lot of this was around sort of orchestral musicians. And they're getting into, you know, high level endurance brackets of heart rate um, during particularly performance and particularly if they're like a solo instrument, you know, pianists or, um, you know, uh, first violinists. And... Uh, but we don't train for it, right? They just sit in the chair all day. Um, and it's not just about, um, you know, because people sort of think of physical fitness as being, oh, I can, you know, run up and down the street. But when I when I talk to them about it, because they're kind of like, why do I need it? It's about oxygen delivery to muscles, right? Mm-hmm. Because when they're using these muscles in this very sort of, um, you know, sort of uh, drawn out long sort of endurance way, you need a lot of you need a good pump right to get get the oxygen going in because if you start to work if muscles start fatiguing and starting start running out of oxygen uh they can switch to an what we call an anaerobic respiration without oxygen but the byproduct of that tends to be more inflammatory chemicals the lactic acid people talk about you know after exercise um so it's kind of a um, it, the system doesn't run quite so clean when you're without oxygen. So if you can be in a more uh, oxygen-rich state for longer, then you're not producing so much inflammation because the typical things that musicians are presenting with is muscle soreness, muscle fatigue, you know, pulled muscles, torn muscles. And a lot of that is is just from an overuse issue, Um obviously related to postural alignment as well. Um, but if, 
it's not just enough to have a, a good efficient posture on the instrument you know you need to look at how are you you know not only pumping blood to the system but also pumping the drainage system as well to clear out all those inflammatory waste products that are produced during during playing um so it's kind of multi-level um so muscle is- issues tendonitis issues again these are all sort of fall into that overuse bracket and it will be location specific depending on the instrument that they play um and uh, but also nerve entrapment is another quite common thing that i'm working with uh with musicians uh particularly you know nerve entrapment to hands fingers um and so each instrument comes with its own kind of predispositions and um the there are sort of there have been studies as well in the literature of sort of risk assessment by instrument and which are the high risk instruments so upper strings are, are quite high risk i think the highest risk instrument is the harp and i've worked with a few harpists in my time and that's a beast of an instrument because it's so huge mm-hmm. um but not only are you obviously using the hands at quite if we're talking about like the full concert harp right you know it's quite an extreme reach but also their their feet are on pedals both feet so they've got no sort of grounding they're literally sort of legs and arms in space so there's a lot of of um postural effort of the muscles as well as so so what what tends to be the reason muscles get into trouble with musicians is if they're being asked to do a postural job holding yourself up in space as well as dynamic movement you know m- muscles tend to be more favored towards one or the other mm. But if you think of like, you know, the muscles that fire our fingers, which sit up in the forearm here, um, they're mainly dynamic muscles, right? They're designed for what we call fine motor tasks. But if you're holding an instrument in space or holding the arms out in front of you, they're also playing that postural role. They're having to hold themselves up. And that's endurance. That's like, you know, a full contraction just to resist gravity, essentially, mm-hmm. and carry the weight of an instrument. And then on top of that, you then ask them to do dynamic movement. It's just overload overload for the muscles. So when we're talking about postural alignment, what we're really doing is trying to put as much of the postural load onto the big postural muscles that are designed for it in in which are mainly sort of in the torso so that these are free just for the dynamic movement required to play the instrument um so it's it's literally about you know giving them you know putting the tasks on on muscles that are appropriate for that task mm-hmm. um and also um, the issue with a lot of instruments, I would argue all instruments, even the ones I'll talk about in a moment, which appear to be symmetrical, most instruments are asymmetrical, right? So we're not, you know, we've got particularly like violin, cello, you know, got one hand doing one thing, the other one doing another. So you've got different tasks going on, but also, you know, even brass woodwind instruments, you've got one hand higher than the other. Flute is an obvious asymmetrical Mm. instrument, but even things like piano, you know, your two hands are not doing the same thing. Your two feet are not doing the same thing. Kit drummers, you know, you've got all four limbs doing all different tasks so there isn't really something that that's nicely shared and if you think of the spine back pain can be another common thing for musicians and you think of the spine and all the muscles that go off right and left 
the spine is happy when those muscles have equal tone in them. So there's not more to pull on one side versus another. But when we've got all these instruments that require us to be in these sort of rotational positions, we end up with these sort of asymmetrical forces coming into the spine and then the spine gets unhappy as well. So um, I, I used to do it. So I was part of the team that created the master's degree in performing arts medicine at University College London. And um, one of the th things I, you know, when I was designing the the, the lectures, we were, we had musicians coming in to sort of, you know, work with the the, the medical students. Um, and one of the things I like to do is say, right, let's have, you know, four musicians who play different instruments take with their shirts off and then say to the students, what instrument do they play? <laughs> because normally when you're playing an instrument for so long and you most most people, particularly in the classical realm, start playing their instrument as a child. So their body is actually developed around the instrument. Wow. Yeah. You take, you know, you've got a cellist who sits like this. You take the cello out and the body's still there. <laughs> Right. You've got the guitarist that's doing the so you can I can look at a body and go, Oh, do you play flute or do you play, you know, so um it's like a good test of seeing how, you know, muscles develop over time and even bone structures. So people that play cello, for instance, as a child often have what we call a functional scoliosis, where there's actually a slight twist and rotation to the spine, which helps them accommodate the instrument. Mm. Um, and it's developed just because they hang out there uh, all the time. Uh, so, so yeah, so there's lots of layers there as mm. to, to why playing instruments as so is, you know, uh, can be hazardous hazardous to your health um but there are ways that we can optimize you can never make these instruments symmetrical right mm -hmm. so it's never going to be perfect but there's a way that we can get as close to neutral alignment as possible and make sure we're using the appropriate muscles for the task mm -hmm. and not asking muscles that are not built for that to do something that they're obviously going to end up hitting a brick wall at some point down the road mm -hmm. Anatomical efficiency is something that you focus on with your singers as a performance coach and with your osteopathic work as well. So how do we know that we are being anatomically efficient? What does that even mean? What does it even mean? Yeah. I know it's so hard because, you know, I, I like to talk about, you know, where is neutral for you? And it's different. For, you know, there's no, you can't say, oh, your spine should look like this. Or if, you, you know, everybody's got different natural curves to their spine and the spine should be curved. That's the other thing. People have this idea sometimes, oh, I have a straight back. That's that's good posture, right? It's, that's nonsense. Uh, there are natural curves to the spine. It's, are they exaggerated? Is that neutral for you? And what what may appear to you when you're looking at someone say, oh, they've got a really sort of arched lower back, for instance, when you actually look at it, that's actually the way they're built. That's neutral for them. So we have to be mindful that we're not trying to put everyone in this kind of cookie cutter um, mm -hmm. cut out of what we think is is a good posture, which may not be efficient for them. So that's why it's useful for me being an osteopath as well, because I can actually assess uh, the spine and say this is this is your neutral but there are some general kind of rules of thumb that we we can go through 
um, of how to find neutral. The issue is that so many people are away from neutral, particularly instrumentalists. You know, I often say to like double bass players and, you know, uh, guitarists, if I take your instrument, you know, pianists as well, you know, if I take your instrument away, Will will you still be upright? <laughs> it's like they're they're literally using falling into the. You take it away, they'd hit the deck. You know that's not appropriate. We need to be somewhere that if the instrument is not there, you're in balance. Mm -hmm. So you are in balance around the instrument, not um, you are using the instrument to prop you up or um, to lean on. Um, so the issue is that when people have played their instrument for a very long time. That it's it's hard for them to know where neutral is. They think it's like ballet dancers who are always in turnout. If you ask them to stand in parallel with their eyes shut, they're still going to be a bit like this. They go with that, and if you ask them to stand in parallel, they feel like their feet are pointing inwards. It's your mind map gets changed. So when I help people find their neutral, they can often say this feels really uncomfortable. They there's this expectation that neutral is going to feel like you know this kind of you know beautiful la la land place that's oh it's effortless being here no if you've got shoulders that are used to being rounded around your instrument your pet muscles and the fascia is all kind of shortened into that space you know our bodies will always uh mold themselves the soft tissues will mold themselves into the most used shape mm -hmm. so if i then show you where a neutral position is for your shoulders and there's all that tension in the chest it's going to feel like effort to get them back because you're working against the tension of the tissues and the muscles that are trying to counter it are weak so it, it'll take a while for people to to transition into the neutral for it to feel efficient it won't automatically feel great <laughs> mm. um, straight away so um, that's another sort of thing that can be a little barrier to to getting into that neutral place um, but there are kind of little tricks I use with um, musicians to to show them the difference between what they're doing and the efficiency of what happens when they're in neutral and using the right muscles for the right job. Mm -hmm. um, so I haven't got anyone to demonstrate on it here, but I, I, I can describe one of the things I do. And this is about shoulders because neck and shoulders is often, you know, well, for a lot of people, even just people sitting at keyboards, you know, as in computer keyboards all day, uh, have these kind of issues. Um, the m muscles of the shoulder are actually quite small muscles. They're not designed for that endurance work, uh, yet we're often using them for endurance tasks. So what I often ask people to do is I get them to stick their hand up and I I resist them. And I say, All right, push your hand into mine and I'm going to resist you with two fingers. And I can literally overpower them and knock them over backwards when they're trying to power from their shoulder. Then I say, right, now imagine your arms are tree trunk and the roots go all the way down, right down to your tailbone. And I want you to engage all the muscles of the back and then push from there. And I try and resist them now and they'll push me across the room. So it shows them literally in a few seconds. So it shows that they haven't had to build that strength up. It is already available to them. <laughs> and they're like, oh, I'm like, well, how about those muscles hold you and your instrument up? And then these guys are free to just play. You're going to get increased speed, increased dexterity, increased uh, uh, sort of endurance um, and decreased muscle tension. Mm. So that's often the sort of quick sell I use to show how we can access those things. But in order to access those muscles, we have to be in that 
neutral spine. Uh, so what I normally do is get people to lie on their back on the floor with the knees bent up so your feet are sort of on the floor and your knees bent up because that gives you kind of a rough sense of the spine. So the thing is, if you try and do this in a standing position, there's nothing to give you any feedback as to where you are. So when you're lying down, you've actually got the floor giving you some kinesthetic feedback, which helps people connect with the shape a little mm. bit more. It's a bit nebulous when you're standing up. So I get them just to lie in that neutral position with the knees bent up. And, you know, I say, what's touching the floor? What's not touching the floor? So typically the sacrum, the, the triangular bone at the base of the spine is in contact with the floor. And then there's often a little rise up with the lumbar spine, that natural arc. Mm -hmm. Then the thoracic spine comes into contact a little bit more. And then potentially another little rise up uh, for the neck. And then you've got the back of the skull there. So it gives them kind of an image of the natural curves. Because, again, a lot of people are trying to get a straight back. Mm. And that's not what we want. Curves are there for shock absorption, right? They are there to help dissipate the forces through the spine. So we don't want a dead straight spine. People that have a flatter spine, particularly lower back, tend to have more back pain because the mm. forces don't dissipate very well. There's a lot of accumulation of forces when you're walking around and stuff, more disc problems uh, there. So it increases stability and shock absorption when you have the natural curves in place. Mm. So that kind of gives them an idea of their neutral. Then what I ask them to do is to tuck the pelvis under and feel how they lose that arc of the lower back because a lot of people like to kind of slump and tuck under, particularly if they sit to play, which mm. a lot of uh, instrumentalists do. They like to tuck behind their sitting bones and lose that lumbar lordosis, which is the natural curve of the lumbar spine, and then come back to the middle and then arch your back and see if you can increase that arch and come back. So you can't find the middle until you know where the extremes are. Mm -hmm. So I get them to explore the extremes of that, again, with the tactile feedback from the, the floor. Um, and so they can start to get a sense of where the middle is between those two extremes and what feels the most sort of, you know, the least effort to maintain. Then what I'll ask them to do is to slowly slide the legs out because that then replicates more standing right mm -hmm. and notice if anything changes and for most people they're going to find that their arch in their lower back increases as the legs straighten out and that's often because a lot of people particularly those who sit a lot to play have short hip flexor muscles right so when you straighten the legs out the hip flexors pull the pelvis forwards and tilt an arch the back so now we know well we need to do some stretching out for our hip flexors because again, if we're trying to find a neutral spine, but our muscle tissue or fascial tissue or the connective tissue is is shortened to the point that it won't allow for it, we need to do something to help that change before we can access that um, uh, neutral position. So, uh, so that kind of helps them understand the where they might need to do a little bit of of, of stretching out. Then I translate that into a standing position so that they can get and sort of remembering that sensory feedback that they had from the floor. And then again, in standing position, go to a tucked pelvis, to neutral, to an arch, to neutral, find that middle space um, so that they, they start to create a new kind of mind map for where neutral is and then go to where you would normally hang out. Oh, whoa, that's quite a long way from where I where this is, right? So mm -hmm. you need to explore all of those. 
And it's not to say it was kind of to your point as well that, you know, we, we can't always be in these neutral postures when we're on these instruments. And But if your body knows where neutral is, the most efficient place, it'll always want to gravitate towards it. Mm-hmm. So it's like be in neutral, make the least amount of adjustments you need to make to get to whatever instrument it is that you're playing and then whenever you have a moment so so many instrumentalists particularly orchestral uh instrumentalists even when they're not playing like perhaps there's a you know a phrase that they're not involved in they tend to still hold <laughs> the instrument there it's like relax put your arms down if they don't need to be there so i get people to go through their score and see where are the rest moments so you don't need to like hover because mm. the other issue when you're talking about muscle uh usage is that a contracted muscle has no blood supply, right? The blood vessels run through the fibers of the muscle. So when the muscle's contracted, it's actually squeezing the blood out. It's only when it releases that you get reperfusion of fresh blood in and therefore fresh fresh oxygen in plus drainage out, right? So any a moment you get to just release those muscles, you're getting a reperfusion of oxygen in uh, for the next uh, bout of effort. So going through your score and finding those rest places are really important as well. As the osteopath and the performance coach, what's been your experience with actor musos or singers who have been playing or continue to play woodwind or brass instruments? And in particular, what type of tensions do you see? Yeah, so brass and woodwind is quite interesting if you're a singer as well. I think there there are there are often some crossover benefits of that because in my experience of working with brass and woodwind players, I was so surprised years ago when I first kind of came into this, having, you know, coming from the singing world myself um, and not being a brass and woodwind player and having gone through that sort of pedagogy, I just assumed they would have been talked how to breathe. Mm. (laughs) The concept of subglottal pressure and things like that. So actually, I think singers who have been taught that are actually coming with with, a, with an added benefit for for um, uh, for breath control for for playing brass and woodwind. So it's really um, yeah, really. So with brass and woodwind, I'm very focused on this concept of subglottal pressure because mm-hmm. they don't seem generally, you know, I'm over generalizing, but the majority that I've come across don't understand the concept of that. Um, and so this is this is again about the pressure, uh, air pressure beneath the level of the vocal cords, right, which form the glottis, hence the subglottal, sub beneath glottis pressure. So in order to get, uh, you know, sustained phrases and also to get increases in volume and pitch, those are a function of how much subglottal pressure we have. And this relates now to the kind of body alignment thing. Tip, what, when I was talking about people who tuck pelvis under when they mm-hmm. sit, which is probably the majority, um, there's an inevitable collapse at the mm-hmm. centre and the lower rib cage margin, which is exactly where the diaphragm sits, right? So as we know, when we breathe in, the diaphragm has to contract and flatten downwards. And in order to do so, it has to displace all the uh, abdominal organs that are beneath it. And if you're sitting slightly slumped down, you're actually sort of crushing that area and you're limiting what we call the excursion of the diaphragm. Therefore, the diaphragm can't make its full descent and its full uh, contraction because the the pressure of the organs is being pushed up against it. 
therefore you're not bringing uh, as deep a tank of air in uh, as you could if if that diaphragm was running free therefore we've got less air pressure beneath the the glottis and therefore it's just like singing if you haven't got enough beneath the glottis to support the column of air for that phrase note whatever it is mm-hmm. you're going to have to over recruit through the um the muscles around the larynx around the upper airway and particularly jaw mm. tends to come into that mix as well. So if so that for me is every because you can't, you know, often brass and woodwind players, I'm dealing with TMJ, temporomandibular mm. joint issues um up here. And a lot of them will be coming from the fact that they don't understand the concept of of subglottal pressure and being able to be in a neutral position to get maximum, you know, output from the the breath mechanism to offload all of this. So this is symptoms. Often the breath mechanics are cause. Mm. So so that's a a, a big um, uh, issue for me. And so and again with a lot of brass and woodwind instruments, they're all held in front of the body. So there is also this tendency to kind of chin poke a mm. little bit, particularly if you're if you're already tucked from the lower back this is the inevitable outcome of it. When you actually uh, retract and sit on your sitting bones, then the head can come back because the jaw is also a, a balanced muscle. You know, it's the whole mechanism of the jaw is, is helping us to balance and hold ourselves up in space. Mm. And if the head is forwards of the center of gravity in the body, there is already tension just to stop you from falling over. We are constantly trying not to fall over. <laughs> in our bodies and the closer we are to neutral the less we have to do to hold ourselves up mm. whereas as soon as something starts to poke forwards and off that midline off that center line something's contracting to stop us from from falling and to counter the gravitational pull that's that's working uh, against us at that point so everything comes back to this neutral posture you can start to address mm. so many of these issues from that um, but I would suggest that singers are probably often coming to a brass or woodwind instrument with more awareness of that because you can't get away with it so much um, singing as you mm. as you can <laughs> with, with uh, being a, a brass and woodwind player. Mm. I don't know if you've noticed, but f- since starting this conversation, I, I I began by sitting on one of my foot heels, and now I have gone to sitting quite perfectly upright. <laughs> I have noticed actually. Yes, you're looking a little more neutral. Yeah, and there's um, I mean, there's a great again. I can show you a really quick and easy thing that I give to people to know: Are you sitting in a neutral position? Because again, if people haven't experienced it, they don't know what what that is. Um, so when I I say to people, right, sit in your normal position, and for a lot of people, that's kind of a little tucked under, a little slumped. And I say, right, I want you to stand up, but I want you to analyze what you have to do to get yourself upright. And if you're tilted a little behind your sitting bones, inevitably you have to kind of throw your head forward to stand up. So then I say, right, did you see how much effort it took to get you upright? So now I want you to sit down and I want you to actually break the hip uh, alignment and actually tilt the other way a little bit, which people often think, oh, that's a bad thing to do, but not necessarily. We want our two sitting bones. I'm like, they're called that for a reason because we're supposed to sit on them, not behind them. <laughs> so we want those to point straight downwards. So if we tilt a little bit, get a crease in the hip and plant yourself straight on your sitting bones, 
what you'll find when you're sitting there is if I say stand up now, you can stand up straight in one movement and down, straight up, mm -hmm. straight down, straight up. So musicians, I always say before you start playing, sit down, stand up. And if you had to do that, <laughs> recheck. Can I pop up, down? Yeah, I'm in the right mm -hmm. place. Bang, go. So that's a nice, again, quick and easy uh, check. Am I sitting in a neutral position? And what I also encourage you, and it kind of, um, you know, was prompted by what you said about your feet. Mm. Musicians, they, you know, I, they often have their feet tucked under their chair, you know, ankles crossed, tucked under the chair, which means you're falling forwards again. Put your feet underneath the knees so that, the, you know, you've got sort of a 90 degree angle there and use them. So particularly for cellists, I love them. Like you, if you've got like, you know, strong bow movement you've got to do, press down with your right foot as you do that movement. And again, you're using the whole body to create power and offloading this. And, and they're like, Whoa, I mean, the change in sound when you do that, mm. the volume they can get, they're like, oh, Whoa. it's like all this unused, untapped potential we've got in the body because you forgot you had a pair of legs. Well, I don't use them to play my cello. Yes, you do. Mm. Right. So actually being mindful of what we're doing with the feet and can we use those to actually counter, you know, when you've got a violin or a viola on this arm, all that weight and you've got your left leg tucked behind you, it's just dropping into nothing. Bring that leg underneath you. Now you're using that leg to support it as well. So just looking at it, you know, almost like from an architect's perspective, mm. you know, build something that's out like that with no support, you know, it's going to fall over. It's not self-sustaining. And then when we're looking at shoulders, I often use the analogy of a crane, it's like, you know, you've got the long arm of a crane. What's it got on the back? Right? It's got massive concrete blocks. Otherwise, it's going to tilt over. So we want to activate those big back muscles and create the counterweight for what's out in front of you. And then suddenly this is free, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is one of the things that's always a good sell for musicians because you can tell them, right, this is an efficient posture. You need to because it often takes a lot of yeah, it takes a lot of awareness, mindfulness, overriding of old habits. And people always want to just fall back into their habits. And you know, if they're in absolute agony, getting them out of pain can be a motivator. But for people who it's just like this is because I like to do prevention work. Mm. So they haven't actually got something that's telling them it's what they're doing is bad right now, but I can see into the future and go, that's going to be a problem for you in about five or six years' time. Um, what does sell them is when they hear the difference. Mm. So, you know, but particularly for acoustic instruments, uh, you know, you're upper strings, lower strings, guitar, acoustic guitar. Um, when your body weight is falling into the instrument, and particularly with like a cello or a double bass where they're wrapped around it, mm. you know, I often say to them, would you wrap a damp towel around your instrument and expect it to sing in a beautiful resonant way? It's like, no. You know, if you think of the resonating chamber, the boxes of those instruments, they need to ring free. But it's like you're wrapping a damp towel around it. So when you start to open up the body, not only do you open up the resonance of the instrument, but you also open up the resonating cavity again, which singers understand that this is a resonating chamber, but musicians don't tend to think in that way. Um, you open up the resonance here, you, you hear the difference. So I've done this like in group situation in classes and in lectures, um, and I get people like play how you normally play mm -hmm. and just play like that for a bit and then slowly change to the new position. 
And suddenly people, literally the audience just goes, oh, you hear the ring, you hear that sort of increased resonance from the instrument, that sells it. <laughs> so when I, um, and when they can get like really big volume from a down bow or something that they could, couldn't have got from the other position, that will sell it. So that's a, another kind of um marketing strategy I use for reasons to change change posture. And another great shortcut to that, because it's very difficult, you know, you can talk about, right, you need to use your latissimus dorsi muscle and engage your rhomboids and all of this. But when someone's playing, you don't want them to be in their logical mind. Mm-hmm. You want them to be in flow state and they don't want to be sort of thinking, am I engaging my left rhomboid when I'm, you know, trying to play Bartok or something? Um, so, a great image that I use that's very transferable to performance is imagine your audience is behind you. And I do this with singers all the time because singers, it tends to be all, ah, and it's all you know, out here <laughs> because the audience is there and, you know, for musicians, the conductor's there, everything, your score is there, everything's in front of you, your music stand, uh, everything's here. It's like, imagine the audience is behind you. You know, I would say, you know, that sense when somebody walks up behind you, mm. And I want the sound to come out of your back. Your sound does not go forwards. It goes out your back through your resonating cavity and out that way. They're immediately there. Mm -hmm. And I haven't had to say, engage this, pull this, do that. It may be there are some tissue restrictions which are not allowing them to get the, the whole way, but it's a huge step. And it's something they can just imagine. I just say, just imagine you're in theatre in the round right there's as there are people sitting behind you as well as in front of you they've paid their money too you need to be performing to them as well mm-hmm. that's often a one-stop shop that is easy for for, for musicians to get to mm. it seems very linked to this the feldenkrais idea of awareness through movement and also how we we talk about singing being a whole body instrument well maybe singing isn't the only one it seems like all of these instruments are whole body playing positions absolutely they are you know and i again my first lecture in my course on injury prevention for musicians is always your body is an organic instrument you know you're so focused on the instrument and you know yes people get very attached to their instruments they even give them names you know there is a very human relationship but at the end of the day if something does break on it you can get another one Mm. This not so much, you know, so you really need to be paying more attention to the organic instrument um, and your re- it's it's a relationship between the two. You know, if you just put that instrument down, it's not playing, right? It requires the interaction with you. Mm-hmm. So um, so in that sense, you know, and, and I'm now sort of, you know, when I'm talking about anatomy and physiology, my languaging now, I've, I've gone down to the quantum level of, of biology, quantum biology, because it, it's it's much truer, I would say, than the more classical level anatomy, or we can get, there's more, there's more information there. And at that level, at the quantum level, we're just frequency, energy and vibration. Mm-hmm. So there is no difference. So for me, there is no difference. You know, the instrument is not making the sound. It's it's all of us. And and as I say, when you when you're engaging the whole body, and and I would encourage, as you say, with movement, you know, that uh, you know, musicians, instrumental musicians should be doing movement training as well and honouring this instrument. And because it's when you're not 
engaging this instrument, you can hear the difference. Even on, you know, electronic instruments, I would argue, you can, you know, the strings are still resonating, you know, still, it, it is it is a requirement of the two, um, the two parts of this dance to be in equal resonance. Um, and it's the, the communication aspect, because at the end of the day, all artists, at a base level, we're just in communication through whatever medium that may be. If you are shutting down the communication here, and remember that 99% of communication is body language, right? Mm. So if your body language around the instrument is this, and you're playing Mozart or something, you know, some, you're, you're, it's just like when I work with singers, if your body language is not honoring the text or the character that you're playing or the lyric in the song, then there's a disconnect for the audience, right? And I don't really mm. believe it could be technically perfect, but there's the emotional connection is not there. So for me, there's no difference between that and, and playing an instrument. You have to be the very embodiment of the emotional journey that you're taking your audience on with this particular piece that you're playing. If if you if you are not honoring that in all your cells, then for me, there's a there's a disconnect, and I I always say I can hear posture, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know I can hear when I walk past the practice room. I used to teach at a, a big music conservatory here in LA, and uh, you know you walk past the practice room and I, they're slumped over their cello or their because t- you can hear the the damping of the sound, but also there's just it's something almost ineffable that you can't put into words but it's just like I just it's not full communication there Mm -hmm. right they're in their head or they're you know um so I think we need to you know it would be helpful I think in in the music pedagogy world to start to really honor the physical body not as just this prop that holds up the instrument and presses the strings keys Mm -hmm. name your thing you know um, we have to be honouring that more um, and not just seeing it as a as a technique generator, but mm. more of a, of a of a sort of psycho-emotional component of playing. And that kind of comes back into injury risk as well. One of the talks I used to give was on the emotional practice environment and how our psycho-emotional state can also affect injury risk. Mm-hmm. Because when we are stressed out and, um, you know, in that sort of what we call sympathetic or fight or flight state of the nervous system, you naturally produce more inflammatory chemicals. So inflammation is a preemptive strike that the body produces in times of fear, right? And the body doesn't discriminate whether you're stressed out about the audition you've got tomorrow or you're about to get attacked by a bear, right? The body doesn't know the difference. It does the same thing. And one of the outcomes of a bear attack might be an open wound. Inflammation is what we send to areas of of damaged tissue to repair it, right? Inflammation Mm -hmm. is not a bad thing. It's, it's it's, It's a repair kit. You know, it's a puncture repair kit, essentially. So even when you're in an emotionally stressed state, you are producing inflammatory chemicals therefore they're not being used to heal a wound because there isn't one so they're running unchecked through the system and if you've got a muscle that's a little sore from overuse already and now you've got more inflammation in the system you're going to get an amplification of that pre-existing uh you know uh, area that was you know already in a little bit of trouble but also we tend to go into a shallow breathing pattern right when we're in that more Mm -hmm. stressed state 
less oxygen coming into the system, less oxygen available for muscle use. Muscles are going to fatigue more quickly. Mm. Don't tend to have as much cognitive function. So we can get lapses in coordination and things like that. So we can uh, cause injuries just because of neuromuscular coordination issues. So there's a whole cascade that we should be looking at you know, really, when you step into a practice room or into, you know, performance environment, making sure you are paying as much attention to, you know, most people's warm ups, like, oh, I'm super stressed, I've got to sit down, I've got to do 20 scales, right now I'm ready to play. So, um, so yeah, so I think there's a lot we need to be doing to honour the entire physiological mechanism that includes psycho-emotional mm. as a part of uh, instrumental playing, not only for, you know, reducing injury risk, but also for improved performance skills. There are There is no distinction, from, in my opinion, between those two things. Mm. You mentioned head position earlier on. For flautists, for violinists, how is that going to impact their singing when they come away from that instrument? And what does it mean to kind of shorten the sternocleidomastoid was I, I know that you know sometimes having the head to the side can be a good assessment tool chris johnson has done a lot of work on that if if your head goes to one side purposely put it to the other side a little bit in line with what you were talking about finding the neutral yeah but how how does that impact the singer who's got flute and violin in their toolbox as well yeah um great question so um yeah, so it comes back to that sort of concept I talked about earlier about the body in, in its ideal state has equal tone in muscles right and left, particularly around something like a spine that's that's quite a, you know, a structurally integral part of the system. Um, so when we've got asymmetry, so if you are playing flute for many years, prolonged state, violin, viola, um, the other way, then there tend to be shortenings in some muscles and lengthening in other muscles. Um, when we look at the vocal apparatus, the larynx and the surround, the hyoid bone, you know, the hyoid bone is the only bone in the body that doesn't articulate with another bone at a joint, right? It is completely suspended in space by this sling of muscles. So if you've got an ace, and again, it's not, you know, people talk about the scalenes, the sternocleidomastoid as neck muscles, and they forget that the vocal muscles are part of what holds your head up. They're not, you know, we put them in the bucket. They're vocal muscles. We only use those for vocalizing. Mm -hmm. No, they're, they're, hold, they're part of not only our, uh, what holds up our head in space, but what's really important from my perspective that's often missed out in this equation is they're part of our balance system. So it's something called the stomatognathic system, which is a bit of a mouthful, but it's the relationship of this, you know, if you think of the neck, it's, you know, the most mobile part of the, the spine because we need to be able to check our environment out. So there's a lot of movement there. So there's a lot of information about where we are in space. So this is something called the proprioceptive system in the body. And I just call it our body's autocorrect, right? <laughs> are we holding ourselves upright without falling over? Because we're always pretty much, unless we're in pure neutral, we're always in controlled falling. Mm. <laughs> so when uh, you are... Um, in that neutral position and everything's symmetrical, the brain is getting a lot of information about where it is in space. 
so that it can coordinate a series of muscle contractions to hold us up. So one of the things I get people to do is like, you know, stand with your feet parallel under your hips and just shift your weight towards the balls of your feet and check from your head to your toe what tightens, you know, and you'll Mm. find like your hamstring muscles, your calves, your glutes at the back are all going, we're falling forwards, we've got a grip. And then come back to the centre, go back to your heels. Oh, your abs suddenly grip and your quads because you're falling backwards. But this is gripping as well, right? Mm -hmm. So what happens in your neck as you go off centre? And we have to remember that the head is, you know, in the average person weighs about 12 pounds. But for every inch it moves off centre, and for most people that's typically forwards, for every inch forwards it goes, it doubles in weight. So suddenly, you know, if you're hanging out here playing flute or something, you've got about 48 pounds of weight hanging through the the sort of, you know, trapezius muscles, levator scapulae, which are gripping and again are in constant contraction, therefore no blood supply, right? What happens over time is this, if muscles are being asked to hyper contract like that for prolonged periods, the brain goes, that's very inefficient. I have to burn a lot of energy to do that and and it's always on a sort of energy drive who's using too much of our battery life Mm. so if you're doing that habitually what it'll do is it'll say well if you want to hang out there I'm going to shorten you up and toughen the tissue and become more fibrous I'm going to turn your muscles into a ligament essentially so that it holds you there without having to burn a contraction Mm. so what we've then got you know I always ask people you know press into these muscles and then press into your quad or something they're supposed to be made of the same stuff. (laughs) Why does this feel like old boot leather and this is nice and squishy? So the reason is, is because it's been overloaded and has shortened and thickened to become like a leather strap that'll hold you there and then you don't have to actually burn energy to do it. But what you've now done is restricted the movement in it. You've restricted the blood flow in it. You've now locked all the joints that run underneath it into a stiff and now you're like, oh, now I can't look over my right shoulder. So we see these adaptive changes in the body that happen with with these sustained kind of postures. Mm. So coming back to vocal mechanism, if there's any asymmetry with with habitual positioning of head, that's going to be reflected in changes in the 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 resting length and potentially the consistency, fibrousness of those muscles. So if you think of, you know, those muscles coming in around uh, the hyoid bone, for instance, the ones that lift it up and, and, and draw it down, then if you're, if you're off center, you're going to have shortened one side and lengthened the other. Mm. So a check I do when I've got, you know, a patient lying on the table, I'll, I'll do what we call a ballotment of the, um, the hyoid bone. So just sort of between my thumb and finger, just kind of teasing it right and left and feel which way does it like to go, which way is it resisting going. So if, if say, the right side, if you're a, f- a flute player and the right side is a little shortened, mm. that hyoid bow is not going to like going left, but it'll swing nicely to the right. Um, so I'm like, ooh, we've got this 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 tension coming down here. So I can do sort of, you know, hands-on work to address some of that tension and shortening and, and potentially fibrous change if it's happening. Uh, but then we have to come back to where is that neutral position and how can we minimize the rotation? So there are various things we can do to minimize uh, the rotation to the flute, often even turning the chair slightly and moving the mu- music stand so that they're not so uh, offset. 
and making sure they're bringing the rib cage because a lot of them just doing it with their head. Whereas if you keep the head rib cage alignment true and rotate the rib cage, you're not doing so much distortion at the top. So move, move the twist lower down mm. uh, the spine. Um, so that's ways that I offset that with with uh, violin and viola, looking at chin rest and um, uh, shoulder rest relationship. So I want you to play your instrument from here. Let's stuff this so that it fits. Because yeah. <laughs> most of the time they're just clamping, you know, uh, they're holding the instrument in place. You know, you should have a rest set up that, that holds it there and you don't have to, to chain, you don't have to clamp anything to be there. Mm-hmm. So so that's that's a big thing of, of changing and derotating them so they don't have to. So a lot of them are, are doing more than they need to to get to that. So we're never going to clean it up entirely, but we can at least do the least possible. And often that's even changing where they hold the instrument. Are they, you know, way in front of themselves? Or are they too far out here to play with that relationship? And sometimes that'll even be repertoire specific. You know, when you've got to do all that crazy quick work, maybe we'll bring it in a little but for this one, we'll go out a little so that they're not locked in one option. The body doesn't like, you know, the body's like a a rug, you know, if you walk up and down the same bit of the rug all the time, you're going to wear that bit out, but the rest is all fine, right? So let's share the load around and not get stuck in a one way of doing things. Mm. So if you have got this asymmetry, you're going to have a non-neutral tracking of larynx and um, and hyoid, and therefore you're going to have to use inc- increased phonatory effort mm. to get sounding. And and there may be sort of asymmetrical loads going through the intrinsic muscles and the cords as well, which may lead to, um, you know, chafing in the mechanism um, and, you know, irritation of mucosal surfaces and things like that. So we need to be uh, mindful of that. Um, but also when we come back to this idea of the balance system, if we're not getting good information from all this which should have this beautiful kind of tiny intrinsic movement. Every time your head's sort of moving like this, the brain's got a rich amount of information to know how to hold itself up. Mm. In absence of that information, it's trying to protect the brain, right? It's trying to keep the head in the middle. So if it doesn't have good information from this stomatognathic system, which includes the jaw as well, um, then it's kind of like, I'm not sure where I am. I'm going to grip everything and hope for the best. So a lot of the time, the muscle tension in the neck, and particularly the back of the neck and the suboccipital muscles at the base of the skull, is because the brain, the head doesn't know where it is. So it's like, oh, everybody hold on, I'll grip everything. Whereas if we can come back here and get more discriminate information coming in, you can go, oh, I can let go of those. And I only need to use the minimal amount of effort again to get to hold myself up. So that comes back to that efficiency drive. How little do I have to do to hold myself up, hold my instrument up and play? Mm-hmm. Um And part of that is the body knowing where this neutral is so that it's got that information, a rich body of information to make those decisions with. How would we be able to hear that in sound if the the hyoid bone has been compromised by asymmetry? I kind of hear it as, you know, it's subtle, you know, all these things are subtle, but it's, there's a tension in the system. Um, So, and it's one of those things when you've been doing what I do for so many years, and you're a singer yourself, you, it, we use our, what's called the mirror neuron system. Mm-hmm. I, c- I can feel what they're doing. When I hear that kind of 
it's like there's a little it's not a crack in the sense of you know how we would think mm. of a big crack there's just like there's a little seam through the sound that just doesn't feel clean doesn't sound clean um and and I can immediately and I obviously if you're looking at them as well, but I can even do it if I'm just hearing, even hearing a recording, I'm like, ooh, her head's like this. Or, mm. you know, I can feel that sort of line coming through. So um it just takes opening up your awareness to that. Like if I was making that sound, what would I be doing with it feels like this? Often your body knows when your intellectual brain doesn't, and you're listening to someone and you go, ooh you're probably mirroring what they're doing. Mm. Oh, I've done this with my head. Oh, why is that? Oh, I see that's not tracking. So it's not just that there's right-left tension. With the hyoid, you can get sort of, you know, because it's just floating in space, you can get like oblique tilts through it, those kind Mm. of things. But it just feels, and often the person is presenting with fatiguing, right, Mm. because it's increased phonatory effort. So they're having to do too much to get the sounds because they're working against resistance in the system. Things are not tracking up and down. Um, so it's it it will vary what you hear, but you know there's something there. Mm. And and when you when you hear that, then you can start to look and analyze, look at their head position, look at uh, at at um chin alignment, those sorts of things, front, back, right, left, mm. start to pull, you know, widen your lens to the anatomical and see what cues there may be there and trust your own instinct. Oh, I can feel like this. Yeah. <laughs> it's like an internal knowing of yeah. it. And the more you train that, the more that it's just like any exercise a muscle, it'll get stronger. It's the same with these senses as well. Mm. Open your awareness, train it, train it. Do blind tests on yourself. Can I hear what this person is doing? Like get a YouTube video, hear what they're doing, and then look and see if if what you instinctively felt is borne out by what you see, right? Yeah. Train mm-hmm. it. As an osteopath, you have the ability to get in hands-on. A lot of us don't have that to be able to go in and and, and kind of help facilitate a stretch. Is there anything that we can do as voice coaches to help other than the head tilting and finding neutrals anything that we can be doing to help get things back in symmetry yeah i mean to be honest it's actually i mean the more years i've done this the less and less i have to do hands on in this area i very rarely do it actually because it's very invasive mm. it's it's very reactive area it's it's easy to you know flare things up for someone it's a highly emotional area mm. So I actually rarely do, you know, I'll occasionally assess hyoid. But again, when you've trained all these skills of awareness, I don't need to check it. I know, I just know what's going on there. And when you get, you know, skilled at getting people into neutral alignment, that in itself, it's like stop doing the thing that's causing it and the thing doesn't need to be there. Mm-hmm. So if it's really entrenched and there's something that I really, you know, does need that extra kind of manual help to change, then, you know, yes, I have that option available to me. But for the majority of people, if you set the whole context up, this will just take care of itself. You don't need to, yeah. to worry about it. Um, and it's getting people, they have to kind of retrain 
a little of their senses because it'll feel a bit like the ballet dancer who doesn't know where <laughs> parallel is with their feet. It'll feel like, oh, well, that doesn't feel neutral because I'm so used to being off. So they have to sort of retrain their sensory awareness. So it's really more on the individual doing their homework than what you do hands-on. So I wouldn't sort of, you know, say, well, I've got this extra thing that, you know, that can, you know, makes me so much better at getting this done. No, I mean, and and I start right at the feet, right? I do, I am very detailed about the alignment and I literally start with how their feet are contacting the ground because of the fascial relationships through the body. Um, but don't don't underestimate. I think what I'm saying is don't underestimate what can be changed just by helping people come to that neutral. And then, you know, I teach people self-massage. We can all sort of rub these areas. I, you know, I always say to voice, I've had a lot of voice teachers over the years saying, can you teach me how to do this? And it's like, it's not just about those muscles. It's, this is a highly, I call it a very busy area. And I show them a slide that shows all the blood vessels, all the lymph tissue, all the nerves, the carotid bodies that, you know, there's some extremely vital (laughs) infrastructure in this area. And, you know, my, my kind of rule of thumb when I'm working with, even with trained hands-on practitioners doing advanced techniques, I'm like, if you can't name me every structure between where your finger is and the muscle you think you're going to, i.e. blood vessels, lymph tissue, nerves, you have no right to put your hand there because there's so much that we can mess with blood pressure, with, um, you know, infections that may be being held in lymph nodes, in blood flow so I don't you know unless you really know your anatomy well I don't really like people you know rummage particularly on someone else right mm-hmm. on ourselves we kind of have an instinctive shut off mechanism that we not everybody has it so you have to be careful but um you know some people ah, just get in. Mm-hmm. um but we we kind of instinctively won't hurt ourselves mm-hmm. but what I normally say is find that sternocleidomastoid muscle which starts behind the ear and ends up as those two tendons down here work from there backwards and you're fine it's when you're getting into front of that you've got carotid arteries and baroreceptors blood pressure receptors and things you don't really want to be messing with mm-hmm. uh, so staying behind that line you can work into your own scaling muscles you can stretch out those muscles so if you're somebody who plays an asymmetrical instrument and you spend all day like this well then you need to <laughs> stretch, stretch out and 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 redress the balance at the end of the day so um i get you know i teach people how to do stretches and sort of self massage techniques to open up what you've used that day so that you reset your system back to neutral each day and you're not you know because the muscle tension is a compounding thing it's like you're taking yesterday's tension into today into tomorrow into the next day and then eventually you get a problem whereas mm-hmm. if you if things get tightened up and then you release them tighten them release them you're not going down that slippery slope Uh, towards the injury and then get a regular you know treatment whenever you know if you were again comes back to being the athletes of the small muscles right if you're an an athlete of the larger muscles they tend to have therapists who work with them every day and treat them and give them massages and 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 keep them in peak shape um you know we with the artists we're always you know more strapped for finances than than most of the athletes so we don't have those things provided for us but even if you once every six months go and get a good old clean out let a professional get in there and do the big clean out but you keep on top of the small stuff Mm -hmm. then you know that's a good balance to have Mm -hmm. so 
maintenance treatment, preemptive treatment, don't wait until something goes wrong and then go, please, can you put it back together for me? You know, keep keep fit. It is, you know, most instrumentalists can take apart their instrument and put it back together again, blindfold and take loving care of it. But this, they're like, I have no idea how this works and how to take care of it. So pay as much attention to this instrument as the other one, because that one you can replace, even if yeah. you love it bits, you know. Hmm. I just want to finish on a bit of strings, if that's all right. And um, we're talking now about guitars, about um, using piano as well. So in particular with the hands and the fingers, I remember reading in the book, Singing With Your Whole Self, which is based on the Feldenkrais method. The author's talking about how they witnessed a, a trainer release tongue tension by doing hand manipulations and, and vice versa because of how they describe the fetal development with the, the hands and the tongue branching off of one another, budding off of one another. So how does that correlate to the guitarist whose hands are going to be in different contortions and the pianist who have very nimble fingers um, and what that might do vocally to them? Yeah, and it's it's interesting that sort of connection with hand and tongue. I'm a great fan a lot of the time of using distant areas to address other issues, like the fact that I don't always stick my hands in here. There's also this kind of idea that, you know, when people have a problem or pain or some kind of symptom, and they're so fixated, you know, particularly with vocalists, like, oh, it's all here. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to look at that. I'm going to look at your feet or I'm going to look at your hands. And they're like, anything wrong here but yeah I almost feel like the the sight of you know problem or symptom is often like a spoiled child going me me I want attention and I'm like yeah I'm not going to indulge you I'm going to let's unravel the system you're part of a system here let's deal with the system and then you'll find your place in the ranks and stop being a diva you know so I don't <laughs> like to give attention to that area also because people can become over fixated with it um, so if you can find ways to remotely release through through tension pattern relationships, which are everywhere in the body, that can also be the case when something's very sore, right? And you don't want to be rummaging around in there because it's, it's too sore. You can use these kind of remote connections to open the process. And it's often, so it's interesting what you say about hands, because my finding is with people, not only vocalists who are having issues uh, in the voice tension issues, but also people who don't tend to speak up for themselves. Mm. So the metaphorical is often, you know, reflected in the physical. They tend to have quite pinched you know, a lot of people can't actually open the palms and open, the, I call this like the Spider-Man mm. bit, you know, <laughs> where mm. that comes out. They're very collapsed in here or shortened. Mm. Comes from, you know, from musicians of three obvious reasons, but also people who are on keyboards, on computers all the time. You know, we're in this kind of... T-Rex um, land. Yeah, T-Rex <laughs> So as I kind of work into this area and, and open this up and they're like, oh, that's how I help them connect with like pharyngeal width. So I'm often trying to, how do people get pharyngeal dilation? And you can say, oh, yes, I can yawn. And But a lot of people just like, they don't, I can see they're not getting it. Open this up. And I go, now can you feel that here? And I, oh, I can feel that, right? So there is this, this relationship there. So just because you're playing a guitar or a piano <laughs> does not mean you have to collapse this area right we can still keep the width here and that in fact our fingers will operate much more efficiently if we haven't mm. collapsed this 
because through the carpal tunnel, which is underneath the sort of ten, the, the uh, little ligament band that goes under there, we've got nine tendons that go through an area like, like 20 by 25 millimetres. It's tiny. So if you've collapsed that area even more, so it's nine tendons plus the median nerve, which is the nerve to the thumb and the first couple of fingers, that's carpal tunnel syndrome, you know, and mm. I talked about nerve entrapment. So that's one of the nerve entrapment areas. So if I'm working with someone with carpal tunnel, for instance, we've got to open up this area to allow free glide of tendons and, and nerves. Um, but it also will relate to all of this. So if you've got somebody who likes to collapse around mm. the instrument, if you just work on the shoulders and you haven't worked on this, it's like it's part of the chain. And so mm. it doesn't quite unravel the whole the whole system. And it comes back to that kind of neutral alignment from the center, because if mm. we're again off that and forwards, in order to get to the instrument, whether it's piano or guitar or whatever, there's a lot of rotation that goes. It's like the sort of barbershop pole that goes towards the instrument. When we engage here, we actually derotate and we minimize the. I'm always like, whenever your arms are on an instrument, they need to go around as few corners as possible, right? Because there are tendons and things that operate from this alignment. That's how mm. our arms operate most efficiently. The more curves and twists we've got going on, it's like taking a towel and twisting it. There's not so much slack in the system as if it mm. was lined up. So we want to untwist the towel, and that starts from here, but it also ends here, right? Mm -hmm. So when we get those two, and what I'll often do when I'm working hands-on is I get my thumb right in that that little space uh, in, in the base of the, the, the palm here, and then I have a, a finger up in the shoulder, and I open like that, and they're like, ah, oh, that's where I need to be. And that's like a big yawn. Mm. And when they can feel that, it's like, right, don't collapse your yawn as you come to the instrument. Mm. And for me, that has a direct correlation with pharyngeal dilation. So keeping that mm. kind of that wide space and, and you, you know, people don't know why, but they just they can get it from that. Um, it's like with the uh, soft palate, hard palate complex at the top. If I'm hearing someone that's dropped in their palate and you can hear this kind of flat sound, there's not that lovely domed mm. arch that resonates at the top. That often comes from overpronated feet. Mm. And I just work on their feet to get the arch back under the foot, which is similar, right, to the hand. They're like, oh, I get that. I said, now put that in your mouth. Oh, I get it. Now I can find it. Yeah. So there is this relationship between the extremities and the voice, which probably comes from that embryological relationship. So it is often, you know, a shortcut to something they can't get. You know, we say don't don't get stuck in roadblocks. You're trying to get them to feel something here, and then they get into like shame and blame. I can't find it. I got you know. It's like just mm -hmm. go somewhere else and go, oh, now I get it. Yeah. Um, but it's just experience over the years of finding things that work and that resonate with people mm. and that's yeah that's a big one so I work with that on on a, a lot of people and then if we're derotated here we've got minimal compensations mm. being brought to the instrument and just having that that sense of, of width and support there and it gives a wonderful buoyancy then you're getting you, they can get much more speed and dexterity and and power as well when they're not collapsed into that even you know if they're holding plectrum uh pick you know there's no need to collapse that 
but they just feel like they they've got to but that's because they there's not enough support coming from these muscles so they feel like they're going to drop their pick or their you know fingers are not going to work but when you've got this engaged this this is free we want freedom here not effort mm-hmm. right music doesn't come from effort in the fingers it's freedom in the fingers then you get resonation where you strike the key of the piano the sound is not created at the point of finger strike, right? It's in the action of the piano, which is distant to that. So same with the body. It's not happening where you your finger strikes. It's back in the mechanism further back. So if you relate, you know, body to key on the piano to the action of the piano, which is deep in the instrument, mm-hmm. this is just the halfway point, right? So just again broadening people's lens of where they think you know when when I get musicians with hand injuries I always say where does your sound come from it's not coming from here right let's let's reorganize how we think of where that sound is actually coming from it comes Mm. from inside you this is just a means to transmit the information through the instrument to your audience not to the instrument through the instrument to the audience so you start to widen the lens of where music is actually generated from it's from Mm -hmm. the field and we're just kind of lensing it out Mm -hmm. it's just like you take a photograph what you're picturing is not in the camera right (laughs) it's Mm -hmm. out there Mm -hmm. so so using those sorts of analogies are really useful just to de-emphasize the mechanistic aspects of it yes we have to go in and practice our technique but I always, whenever I'm teaching a class, always end with, right, forget everything I just said about technique and just play it. Just go to that, be the, be the, 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 the you know, connection to the bridge between those things and just play it. So because we don't go on stage and do technique. So you need to train yourself in performance mode as well as in technique mode because they're really two different things so as teachers we need to make sure we're giving as much emphasis to that forget all the technique and trust the system to Mm self-organize around the principles you've embedded Mm, definitely definitely oh jenny as ever it's been such a pleasure where can people find out more about you and follow the very exciting things to come i'm sure um really just my website which is jenny morton j-e-n-n-i-e-m-o-r-t-o-n.com um i got off social about three years ago and loving not being on it but it does mean that it's i don't have those kind of things for people to find me on uh but i've got a newsletter on my um uh website that you can subscribe to i don't i I very rarely do things but if i've got events they'll go out on that so don't worry you don't get bombarded with you know endless emails from it uh but yes and you there's a contact form there or my number and email are on there uh, to reach me amazing and it's really important also to say that you have a, that wonderful presentation on the bass membership all about the fascial trains and talking about sausage strings which you also presented um, a bit of for the the last focus on events so you can check those out on the on the bass membership so thank you so much jenny you are such a vibe i love it thank you <laughs> i really enjoyed it thank you for having me If you're enjoying the Singing Teachers Talk podcast, and who are we kidding? Of course you are. Share the love by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a comment. Just head to the Singing Teachers Talk main page on the Apple Podcast app and scroll to the bottom to click Write a Review.